Welcome to the Liberty Podcast. We're so excited that you're interested in the teaching ministry of Liberty Bible Church. We're a multi-site church that exists to share the love of Christ across Northwest Indiana. If you're looking for a church home, please check us out at our website, findliberty.net. Thanks again for joining us as together we're transformed by the teaching from the Word of God. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we have sung to you, praised you, worshiped your son this morning, and now we ask that you speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit be given freedom in our hearts to accomplish what only he can do. In Jesus' name, amen. This past weekend, my wife and I were out in Pennsylvania for Thanksgiving with my family. We came home on Monday. And it's an 11-hour drive, and so my wife has Pandora on her phone, and we tied that in with the car, and we decided we would listen to Christmas music. And I decided I was going to listen to see how long it would take until a song repeated itself. Five hours later, I had still not heard one song that repeated There's a lot of Christmas carols out there. We all have our favorites, those songs that without them, Christmas just wouldn't be Christmas. Well, today we begin a new series called the Carols of Christmas. And no, these are not the carols that are found in your hymn book. These are not the carols that you can listen to on your radio. These are the carols that are found in Scripture, especially in the book of Luke, carols that surround the Christmas story. Now, these carols have been celebrated, I was going to say, throughout the centuries, but it's actually been almost 2,000 years, so throughout the millennia. The early church, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th century, celebrated these Christmas carols as Christmas carols, and they assigned them Latin names, and those Latin names still exist today, and most of us know these songs, these carols, by the Latin names. First of all, there was Mary's song. After the angel came and talked to Mary, uh, Mary's song is called the Magnificat. It's found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55, and it is just a carol of joy. And then we have Zechariah's song. Zechariah was the father of John the Baptist, who was born roughly the same time as Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin. And that is called the Benedictus from Luke chapter 1, verses 68 through 79, and that is a carol of salvation. And then we have the angel's song. As the angels uh, greeted the shepherds out on the hillside that night, that song is called the Gloria, or the Gloria in excelsis, Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14, and that's just a song, like it says, of glory. And finally, we have Simeon's song. You remember Simeon, the old man at the temple, And his song is called the Nunc Dimittis, Now Let Me Depart. It's found in Luke chapter 2, verses 26 through 32, and that is a carol of peace. So as you prepare for this sermon series, the rest of this series, throughout the month of December, I would ask that you read, especially focus on Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, and familiarize yourself with these carols. But our first carol... The one we're going to talk about today is not found in Luke. In fact, it's not even found in the New Testament. Our first carol goes back about 700 years before Christ. 
We read about this first carol from the Old Testament prophet who more than any other predicted the birth and life of the Messiah, and that is the prophet Isaiah. You're probably familiar with all of the Christmas prophecies in Isaiah chapter 7. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Or chapter 9 in the book of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But the particular carol that we're going to look at today is found in the second half of the book of Isaiah. It's found in chapter 40. So I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. And as you're turning, I'm going to give a little uh, background. Uh, the, The book of Isaiah easily divides into two parts. Part one in the book of Isaiah deals with judgment for sin. Uh, toward the nation of Israel and toward the surrounding nations. Part two deals with salvation for God's people. Part one was written for the benefit of Isaiah's contemporaries. Uh, Those in the southern tribe were being attacked and besieged. Those in the northern tribes, the nation of Israel, had already been defeated. And the message of part one is that sin brings consequences. Part two was written for the benefit of those who would come later. Yes, those that existed during Isaiah's time could read the second part of Isaiah and receive comfort from it, but it was particularly important to those who were in exile. I don't know if we, you heard the song we just sang, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel speaks of those who were in exile and that Emmanuel needed to come for them. Part one is chapters one through 39. Part two is chapters 40 through 66. So I'm going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 40. These would be the first words of the second half of the book of Isaiah. And if you are able, I'd ask that you'd stand for the reading of God's word. The words of God through and to Isaiah. Comfort Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might 
and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs into his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Please be seated. Can you imagine the effect of these words, these words that give hope on their defeated and discouraged and downtrodden hearers? The message was, there is hope, hope that you don't know about yet, Israel. That is hope to be revealed. The light at the end of the tunnel is visible. This carol has four stanzas, if you will. We're gonna briefly look at the first three and then camp out for a while on the fourth stanza. Stanza number one is a stanza about God's grace. Verses one and two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned, and she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A few observations about this first stanza. Observation number one, chapter 40 follows chapter 39. Pretty profound, I know. (laughs) Chapter 39 is Hezekiah's story. Now Hezekiah was a king, he was a king in the south, he was a king of Judah, and he was a good king. He followed God, but he made some mistakes. At the end of chapter 39, we see a prediction of the people suffering for one of the mistakes he made. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And that is the end of the historical section in Isaiah. We read nothing else in Isaiah after that about the history The people of Judah, as you know, were ultimately defeated. They were carried off into exile in Babylon for another 70 years. So whether you were alive during Isaiah's life or 150 years later and life was in captivity in Babylon, it was not a very positive life. It was difficult. You would be empty and depressed and in need of comfort and Here it is. God's grace becomes the points of comfort. Verse two says, Isaiah, you are to speak tenderly to the people of Jerusalem. This is a people that hadn't heard tender words for a long time. Their leaders hadn't given them tender words. The first half of Isaiah hadn't been tender words. You and I know the difference that tender words can make. When we're down and we're depressed, just a kind word makes a difference. Verse two, the message says your warfare is ended. The word warfare is also translated hardship. War, even when we're victorious, comes at a great price. And we rejoice when war is over. Certainly you've seen the pictures, perhaps you are old enough that you remember the end of World War II and the rejoicing in the streets and the relief that many people all around the world felt war is ended. What a comforting news. 
The last part of verse two says, Jerusalem, your iniquity is pardoned. Judah's sin is what had led to Judah's hardship, and like warfare, sin has an expensive price tag. Isaiah said, you have sinned. You've paid the price for your sin, perhaps even double the price for your sin, but that's behind because now forgiveness and pardon are offered and healing and comfort can begin. Stanza one, the message, comfort begins with God's grace. It was true then, that's true now. There are some here this morning who more than anything else need comfort, and it is offered. Stanza number two, God's providence. Verses three through five, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read verse four there, I get a picture in my mind, and I get a picture of the roads in central Pennsylvania. That's a relief map of the state of Pennsylvania. The red dot is a little town in the middle of Pennsylvania called State College. State College is about the population of Portage, unless Penn State University is in session, and then it's more than double that unless there is a football game at Beaver Stadium, which is the second largest stadium in the United States, and then the town of State College quintuples in size. Now, most of the graduates from Penn State come from the southeast part of Pennsylvania. That's where Philadelphia and Harrisburg and York and Lancaster and Allentown, they all are there. And you see what they have to get to to get to the game at Penn State. All the mountains run from the southwest to the northeast. But they're trying to go from the southeast to the northwest. And I remember growing up, there was a little two-lane highway that went back and forth and, back and up and down and back and up. It took us four hours to get from my house to the campus of Penn State University. And people started to complain. They started to say, hey, we need to have better roads. We need to have bigger roads. We need to have faster roads. And so for the next 30 years, mountains were blasted apart and made low and valleys were filled in and raised up and the crooked was made straight and the uneven was made level, at least relatively level. And today I can drive from my house in Pennsylvania or the house I grew up to Penn State University in less than two hours. Why? for the benefit of the people. Because there were some alumni who had money and had influence and they could control what was decided in the places of power and the money was given so that this huge, massive project that brought about a great transformation took place. And now Isaiah chapter 40, verse four, we have a similar description. And I would ask again, why? In verse three it says, to prepare the way of the Lord, to make a highway for our God. 
You see, our sovereign God was going to make these great changes and too often we assume he's doing it for us. God, look at all these nice things you're doing for me, but not here. He was bringing about these great changes for his own glory. It says, so that all flesh, that is all people, will see this great revealing, this comfort that he's going to give, this hope that he's going to give. Jews and Gentiles, you'll both see it. Those that are watchful and those are distracted, you're both gonna see it. And in the end, you will all give glory to God. He's told us that comfort is coming and now he's beginning to spell out what it might look like. Now, how did his hearers know this was really gonna happen? And I love this. Look at verse five. You know it's gonna happen for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. <laughs> no other explanation needed. If God says it, that's enough. It's a certainty. In God's sovereign providence, he made a plan and he spoke that plan and then he carried out that plan. That's the message of the second stanza. On a side note, 700 years later, a lonely figure out in the Judean wilderness who was looked at by just about everybody as a bit strange considering his diet and his wardrobe, he saw this promise, a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, and John the baptizer said, hey, that's me, I got this. Stanza number three, God's assurance. Verses six through eight, and at first these verses don't appear to fit. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What is the point here? Is the point really about grass and flowers and things dying and fading? It's not easy, it's not obvious, but I ask you to hear me out here. We need to ask ourselves, what is the most important point of those three verses? And I think you don't need to be a great scholar to understand that it's verse eight. Verse eight says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you. We should have all been saying amen at that. The word of our God will stand forever. You know, this is a comparison between the humans in verses six and seven who are like grass and are gone before you realize it and God who remains forever. Our words, even our big words, even our well-intended words will fade away. And because of that, they're not worthy of long-term trust or hope like God's words who will not fade away. And they're always worthy of our trust and our hope. And so God's assurance here is our comfort. God is gracious, stanza one. God is sovereign, stanza two. And we know this because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it and it's as if before anyone can question how much is that really worth, he tells us the word God will stand forever. Now, these promises that are being made would be difficult to see, but he's saying they will take place. How many of us today can find comfort in the fact that while all around us there is change and disappointment, God and his word never change. 
God's word is dependable, it is trustworthy, it is authoritative. Oh yeah, it's all those other theological terms too. It's inerrant, it's inspired. We know about canonicity, but what's important is that God's word makes a difference. It's dependable, it's trustworthy. And now the fourth stanza of this hymn, this carol, and it'll be our primary focus for today. The first stanza was God is gracious. Second, God is sovereign. Third, God gives assurance. Stanza number four, God's hope. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules with him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So far, Isaiah has been talking about the reason for comfort that God's going to keep his word, that, that something new is going to be revealed, but he just hasn't told them what that's going to be yet. And now God, through Isaiah, begins to share more of those details. The reason for the comfort, he says, the reason for the hope, are you ready for this? Is a person. God will come to earth. Now that's news. The angel, can you imagine being in heaven, you're an angel, and, and the angels are told God's going to go to earth. No, that's not, that. no. Can you imagine being Satan and viewing the earth as your home field? God is coming to your, he wouldn't have understood that. And most people wouldn't understand it either, but it's true and Isaiah says, now let me tell you about this God, this source of comfort and hope. First of all, in verse 10, he says, he is coming. Our God is coming. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. Let's notice how he's coming. First, he comes with power. He comes with might. He comes with a strong arm. He comes with authority. We're told he's a ruler. He comes with purpose. He will reward some. With all, he will make things right. That's the idea of recompense. There will be good consequences for those who are godly and bad consequences for those who are evil. Put these three together and you get a very imposing picture of this God that's going to come. He's a God of power and authority and purpose. Well, that would bring hope to the Jews then. That would bring comfort to them and it should bring hope for us today. But that's only part of the message of hope because verse 11 shares something else. He doesn't just come, he cares. Verse 11 uses four verbs to describe his care for us. First of all, it says, as a shepherd, he will tend his flock. You know, no one drives the sheep. You don't drive, the, you don't force the flock anywhere. Rather, the shepherd seeks for their nourishment. He sustains them in times of weakness. 
He stays with them in times of isolation and the storm. And that's exactly what Isaiah's readers needed. They needed someone to care. That's what you and I need today. The second verb, it says, he will gather the lambs in his arms. Being gathered into the arms of the shepherd was a a sign of protection and safety and security. My brother used to live outside of Stuttgart in Germany in a little town called Wildberg. And my family visited him. Uh, My mom and dad visited him. And on the hill outside of Wildberg, there's a big field. And we were walking one day and there were sheep all over this field. And when my dad was there, he went over to the fence and he noticed that just inside the fence where he was, a mama you had just given birth to a baby lamb. And so he was just watching it and the, uh, the shepherd, this shepherd was a, a lady, she came out from down in the town and came up onto the hill and, and called. The, the sheep knew her voice and all the sheep went running to her except the ewe and the little lamb that were newborn. And she turned around and walked back down into town and put them away in the shed and dad just stayed there to watch what would happen. In 10 minutes, she had gone down into town and as they were being put in the shed, she realized one was missing and she came back up out of town and now it's starting to get dark and she's looking and she's calling and she sees dad standing by the fence and he, he just goes like this. And she walks over and she thanked my dad and she picked up the little lamb and offered it the protection and security and safety that it needed and then the ewe would follow her and the little lamb back to safety. The Jews being besieged during Isaiah's time, the Jews that were in exile in Babylon a century and a half later, those people needed safety. They needed security. They needed a shepherd who would gather them in his arms. And this promise brought hope. The third verb, it says, he will carry them close to his heart. This is a picture, let's face it, of a hug. You've all experienced this, or at least you've seen it, when a a toddler falls or is frightened or wakes up from a bad dream or is hurt. Immediately he runs to mommy and daddy for a hug and that warm embrace does so much more good than any explanation you can give them about how there's not a monster underneath your bed. Explanations and band-aids are fine, but the warm embrace, the hug is what does it. The hug of a shepherd assures the sheep that no one will separate them from him. And lastly, it says he will gently lead, especially the most vulnerable, those that are with young. He will gently lead. Again, no shepherd drives the sheep. No good can from the can come from that. A shepherd leads the sheep and he does so gently. All of, in this ro- all of us in this room have been led at some point in our lives, probably often. And we've been led because it's been our job to follow because perhaps we have to. But I'm afraid that often we've been led in some not so gentle ways. What a difference to be led gently. Again, the message of hope. 
One final question as I end. Just who is this, this Lord God who is coming to earth with might and a strong ruler and able to set things right, but at the same time he's also a caring shepherd and he's tending and loving and gathering and hugging and leading. Who could possibly join together those two qualities? That's easy, isn't it? The hope for the season, the reason for our hope is Jesus, the promised Messiah. This is truly a carol for Christmas. Yes, Jesus, he would have provided hope for Isaiah's readers then, but Jesus is also the one who provides hope for us today because we stand on the other side of Jesus' first advent. All the prophecies about Jesus on the earth have already been fulfilled. He's already come. He's already come to make things right. He lived and died for us. And what will we do with that? Well, we'll celebrate Christmas, right? We'll overeat and party and buy presents and receive gifts and listen to music and visit family. And these are all okay. Well, maybe the overeating isn't okay. But most of those things are okay. But they're not sufficient. They are an inadequate response to what Jesus comes to do. Jesus comes to be the gift for us of eternal life. And in the next three weeks, as we look at the other carols of Christmas, we'll spell that out in more detail. But today I would ask us, let us not get lost in the trappings of Christmas and forget the central truth to Christmas. If there are some of you here that that don't get Christmas this way, you don't think about, oh yeah, Jesus the baby, nice, yeah. No, Jesus is so much more than that. If you have not responded in that way, I'm gonna stick around up front afterwards. You come up and talk to me. I'd like to share with you about getting to know Jesus more closely. The Messiah has come. He will come again. Like those in, Messiah, like those in uh, Isaiah's time, we have pain, we have hardship, we live in a w- world that is wicked, we need hope, we need comfort. Jesus offers it. Will you accept it? Will you rejoice in it? Will you tell others about it? Let's pray. Dear God, there are so many things during this season that that try to gain our attention, that demand that we focus on them. Don't let us forget what is the real important thing, that the little baby came and lived and died for us and became for us the gift of eternal life. Dear God, that changes everything. We think a transformation of a road is amazing. No, this is a transformation of the whole history of the world. We rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.